Well, thanks, Gabe. Uh, as Gabe said, my name is Tim, and uh, my wife Misty was the one singing right here. And uh, if you saw me in the back, I was holding my son Isaiah, who's 20 months old. And so we're all here, just glad to be here. Normally we're out in Olathe, um, but uh, my wife and I both love cities. Have been down here for First Friday. Came to the first First Friday here to the downtown campus. We love cities. We're glad to be here. Um, just a quick word about me and my background, um, even if you're not interested. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I've been in ministry on staff at a church for, for about 10 years now, actually. And uh, I've been as, uh, a couple years as a youth pastor, a couple years as a campus pastor at Indiana University. Um, spent close to four years as the pastor of a small rural church in Indiana. And uh, the last couple years was actually a worship, a worship pastor while I was in seminary. So done a little bit of everything, and uh, now excited to be a part of Christ Community. Um, normally at Olathe, but just Christ Community, four campuses, but we're one church. And so just glad to be here with you this morning. So why don't I pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at this story of this guy Saul and his conversion. So let's pray. God, we are here to, to hear from you. God, by ourselves, we don't have much to say, much to offer. We're gifted, and, and you bless us, but God, we are little without your spirit. So God, even this morning, I pray, if, if people need encouragement, you would encourage. If, if people need a word, you would give it. God, I, I just open my mouth and speak now, confident that your spirit can, can do whatever it wills through, through my meager efforts. So God, be with us. In your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, few things are more frightening than an angry monk, especially when the monk is angry at you. That, after all, monks are generally generous and kindly. They're gentle. And so to see a monk begin to raise his voice at you is a frightening experience. And I know because there was a moment when a Catholic monk was angry at me, or at least I was one of the people he was angry at. That we were at a, a campus ministry, um, or a campus religious leaders association meeting at Indiana University, which is normally as boring as it sounds, uh, but this time the meeting was beginning get, to get interesting because a monk was getting angry. You see, Indiana University, it's located in Bloomington, Indiana, and interestingly, the Dalai Lama's brother lived in Bloomington um, until he died just a few years ago, and so this meant two things for Bloomington. First, Bloomington had incredible Tibetan food, like some of the best in the country. So good, in fact, a number of Hollywood actors, actually the Buddhist Hollywood actors, would fly in just to eat there and then fly right back out. It was that good. But second, it also meant that at Indian University, the Dalai Lama visited several times. And this was the reason for the monk's anger. See, the, the Catholic monk had decided to host a number of interfaith prayer gatherings, and a few of campus, the campus ministries there, including the one that I worked for, just decided that our conscience could not allow us to attend and, and be at these interfaith prayer gatherings. And so we tried our best to respectfully decline. We let people know we, we didn't want to make a show about it. We weren't trying to be these, you know, renegade campus ministers. We were trying to be kind, but we angered the monk. He was incensed at our sectarian nature, angry that we wouldn't go and join this act of unity, and he was letting us have it in this meeting. And while he was letting us have it, honestly, I wanted to give it right back to him, right? To tell him I'm offended that he's yelling at us, that he's the one showing the lack of unity, because he's the guy getting angry. We're just sitting there. But then I figured to get in a shouting match with a monk has got to be one of the worst things you can do as a human being. And so I just backed off. 
And that moment was six years ago. But that moment to me is such a picture of our culture. The people on opposing lines, drawing lines, bickering, sneering, opposing one another. And so we look at our enemies, or those we think are our enemies, with sneers and condescension. And we know who our friends are, but we often know our enemies even better. And so our culture is deeply fragmented, and in so many ways very broken. And so that raises a question, is there a way out of that? And there is. The church. Because the church is the only place with no enemies. Now let's be honest, no one agrees with me in what I just said. Right, because half of you, right, you, you, you listen to that prayer of the persecuted church, and you look around the world, and the church has very real enemies, or at least it's supposed. People in the church are, are persecuted, suffer for the name of Jesus, and so we look at that and say, how can, the, how can you say the church has no enemies? Or others of you look at the church in the American context, and you see a church that often contributes to the division and the fragmentation of our culture. You see the church as an antagonistic, adversarial place with many enemies and few friends. And you see no evidence that the church could actually be the sort of place that I say, a place with no enemies. So how can I maintain that? The church is the only place with no enemies. It's because of Acts 9, the story of Saul's conversion. That yes, the church will have opponents, but they are never enemies. That yes, the church has opponents, but those opponents are always potential brothers and sisters. And those potentials are, or those opponents, are people we're always willing to risk all for as a church. And so let's look at Acts 9, the story of Saul's conversion under those three headings. That first, the church will have opponents, but never enemies. Now last week, if if you were here at Christ Community, or or one of the campuses in Christ Community, we were in Acts chapter 2. And that was sort of the high point of the book of Acts in many ways, right? That the disciples are gathered, the Spirit comes on, and Peter stands and preaches, and 3,000 people are converted in one day. It's a powerful story, an incredible moment. And then you get to Acts 3, and it it gets a little better. Peter and John are, are walking into the temple, and they see a guy who can't walk. They heal him. And in this miracle, after this miracle, they begin to preach and, and a few thousand more people are converted and things are just getting better and better. And so you get to Acts 4. And then Peter and John are arrested. And they're questioned. It's not too big of a deal. They're let go. But the tide is beginning to turn against the church. And then you get to Acts 5 and it gets worse. Peter and John and the disciples are arrested again, but this time there's a loud contingent of people who are calling for them to be killed. And it looks like they may even win the argument until a man or Jewish rabbi named Gamaliel stands up and says, don't kill them. If, if what they're doing is really of God, it will work. If it doesn't, if it's not of God, it won't work. So just leave them be. But the tide is turning. Until you get to Acts 7 and then the tide turns. And a man named Stephen stands up to to preach to a crowd that had gathered around him that was angry at him, asking him questions. And Stephen stands up and he bears witness to who Jesus is and what he's done. And at the end of his sermon, the people who had gathered around him pick up stones and stone him to his death. All the while, a man named Saul is watching and approving. And so from the great heights of Acts 2... We go to great depths of Acts 7 and Acts 8. 
And this is how Acts chapter 8 begins. I think it's important to, to read before we get to Acts 9. After Stephen's death, Luke writes, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. From great heights to great depths, that now in Acts 8, the church is on the run. The church is being persecuted. Saul is ravaging the church. Things look bleak. And I think as Christians, we often look at the church in that way. That It seems like if you go into Barnes & Noble or look at Amazon, very frequently someone's writing a book about how the church is about to die. Right? And if we don't change quick, the church is just going to fall apart. And that's almost what it looks like in Acts 8, unless you read the whole book of, of Acts. Because in the first chapter of Acts, there's an important word from Jesus. As he's leaving, as he's going into heaven, in Acts 1.8, the last thing he says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven is, is this. But you, speaking to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That what Jesus says in that moment is, from where my feet are right now, to where I'm talking to you. And to the very ends of the earth, the message of who I am and what I've done, my gospel is going to go out. And nothing will stop it. Things will oppose it. People will oppose you, but nothing will stop that message, that gospel. And so even though you read the church getting persecuted, things beginning to look bleak, things beginning to fall apart, the disciples had this moment where Jesus looked at them and said, nothing will stop this. Nothing will stop your church. And this is why the church has no enemies. Because nothing will stop the mission that we're on, the things that Jesus has called us to, the ultimate thing he's called us to do, to preach his gospel, will be preached to every last corner of this earth. But here's where things get difficult. Because Jesus' mission led him to a cross. Jesus' mission led him to suffer for those who opposed him. Jesus' mission led him to forgive those who were crucifying him. Actually, he forgave them while they were crucifying him. That we, I think as a church, often want acts of power or we don't want to be in places of opposition. And yet, that's the gospel we preach. A crucified Messiah who suffered for those who opposed him. And so what that ultimately means is, yes, we will always be in places where people will most likely sneer or look at us in condescending ways or oppose the church in, in incredible ways. In, in some ways, persecution. In other ways, it's, it's smaller. In our culture, thankfully, it's much smaller than death or imprisonment. But people will oppose. But they're not true enemies. They're just opponents. Because Jesus has given us his word that from where he stood... His Spirit will empower us to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so the church is a place with no enemies. The second, this is true because the church will always be around potential brothers and sisters. Right? That those who oppose us are always potential brothers and sisters in Christ. Now Saul was obviously a real threat to the church. I don't want to overlook that. And Acts 8 makes that clear. Stephen dies at the hands of Saul in many ways. And what happens then as we begin Acts 9 is that these Christians have fled from Jerusalem into to many different cities. And one place they fled was Damascus, 
which was 135 miles from Jerusalem, a six-mile or a six-day journey by foot. And so what Saul does is he goes and he gets a warrant for the arrest of these Christians who had fled out to Damascus, and he's going to go hunt them down and arrest them and bring them back. Six days, 135 miles by foot. That, that I have little doubt if you had looked at Saul and said, Saul, you seem kind of obsessed with persecuting Christians. Right? What, is there anything that would stop you? Saul might look at you and laugh and say, well, I suppose if, if Jesus himself came and knocked me down, I'd probably stop then. And that's what happens. That as he's going this journey to Damascus, Jesus shows up. And what's interesting is, is Jesus asks him a question. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which to me is interesting for two reasons. That one, it's, it's interesting because Jesus identifies himself with the church. Right, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You are on this journey, this six-day, 135-mile journey to persecute me. And so there's no disconnect between Jesus and his church. Jesus is his church. He is embodied and present in his church. But secondly, what I love is, is this question is, in many ways, an invitation. Or that if you read the Bible for very long, you'll notice, even though people often do really terrible things, and there are moments when God sort of yells down from heaven, stop it. He does at times, but most of the time, God asks questions. And that's what he does here with Saul. He asks a question, why are you persecuting me? And that question will forever change Saul's life. That with this one question, Saul, who spent his life attacking and persecuting the church, will now spend the rest of his life suffering and being persecuted to serve the church. One question changes it all. Because when we encounter God, when we meet with God, His words have that kind of weight to change everything about us in one question. That for me, when I was a teenager, I was uh, invited to go drum shopping with our youth pastor. Our church was starting a, a worship band, and as a drummer, I needed no excuse to go and spend someone else's money on drums. That was a very easy thing for me to do. So he invited me. I was a teenager. I was the only drummer in the church, so I, I got the invite. And we went, and we, we finished drum shopping, we were in the church van eating Taco Bell, and he asked me, um, Tim, have you ever thought about going into ministry? And honestly, I never had, because I wanted to be a lawyer, that was sort of my main thing, my main goal in life, or I just wanted to have a successful life. And to me, being in ministry and successful life did not go together, at all. And so when he asked that question, this initial reaction I had was, of course not. Who considers those things, right? Who considers going to ministry? What a crazy job. And yet, as I'm answering him that question, something outside of me was saying, that's what you're supposed to do with your life. That I realized my youth pastor wasn't the one asking me that question. It was God. And with one question, the whole trajectory of my life changed. With one question eating Taco Bell in a church van. And I think that's important for us because as we look at people around us, as we look at the world that will often oppose us, we just need to walk with this faith and this hopefulness that they're one question away. 
And I think we try and con- con- convince people, we, we work hard, we, we do all the work we can, and we don't realize that our God is, is the sort of God that with one question can change someone's entire life. And that should make us people of prayer, it should make us people of hopefulness, of faith, that as we're on mission in a city, or as we're on mission, as I'm on mission in Olathe, wherever we are, the people that surround us, whether they are opponents of God and have made that clear, whether they're there's someone in the church that's just deeply frustrating. Just understand, they are one question away. Because God's words, his, his speech, His questions carry that sort of weight to us. And so this enables us as a church to look with hope and with expectation at the world around us. And especially we look at ho- with hope and with faith and with grace on people who oppose us or who are different than us. But that's not how humanity typically functions, is it? That we typically draw hard lines on, on race, on politics, on social class, on religion. We draw hard lines. We know who our enemies are. And that's why I find it interesting the, the job that God gave Paul to do. The one who had drawn such a hard line that he was willing to persecute and, and, and even kill Christians... God tells Paul, and he actually says this to Ananias first, he says, Paul, your job is to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel, to all the world. You're to break down these, these divisions, these, these walls that people build up. You're going to break it down, and the church is not just going to be full of Jewish people. It's going to be full of Gentiles. It's going to be full of every race, every person, every tribe, every tongue. Because up until Paul started preaching to the Gentiles, that's how people divided. And so if you went to the city of Rome in that day, the Romans lived with each other, the Persians lived with each other, the Jews lived with each other. Everyone had their own ghetto, their own cultural place, and no one crossed those boundaries. They married people like them. They, they worshipped with people like them. And then along comes Saul. And he says the gospel and the church is for everyone everywhere. It's for the rich and the old. It's for the poor and the young. It's for men and women. It's for everyone everywhere. And so the church began to have people of different races, different classes, worshiping together in one church. And this is why Christianity is in so many ways unique and why the church has such an important role to do as, Jesus, as being on Jesus' mission. Listen to this quote from the Pew Research Center. I love this. There are 2.18 billion Christians of all ages around the world representing nearly a third of the estimated 2010 global population of 6.9 billion. Christians are also geographically widespread, so far flung, in fact, that no single continent or region can indisputably claim to be the center of global Christianity. That there are 67 million Christians today in China, 32 million in India, 500 million in Africa, 175 million in Brazil, 105 million in Russia. That for centuries the church has been a place with no enemies and no boundaries going out into all the world convincing and converting men like Saul and people who normally would draw these hard distinctions into one church of one people all called by Jesus Christ. And at our worst, the church is just like the rest of the world. We divide over tribal lines, we make clear who our enemies are and we contribute to the endless division of our culture. But that is not why God saved Paul. It's not why God saved me, and it's not why God saved you. God saved us to be his witnesses, as Jesus said, to the ends of the earth, 
to tell this world that the God of abundant grace and incredible love is for everyone everywhere. And, and in this culture, let's be honest, that is a message that's not really believable. That as much as we preach, love everybody, just peace, you know, peace and good vibes, that's kind of the message. We all keep telling ourselves that. It's, it's on every television show. It's the point of every movie. And yet we keep dividing. We keep bickering. We keep sneering. And there's a reason, because we need a message at the center of us that breaks down those lines. And one thing that we have as the church is we know that our God is the sort of God that can change someone's life with one question. And so no matter how much one may oppose us, no matter how much one may, may sneer or divide or bicker or yell or be angry with us, they're one question away. And so we can walk in hope and in faith as we go on mission for Jesus. And so yes, the church will have opponents, but they are always potential brothers and sisters. Finally then, the church will have opponents, but the church will risk all for them. The one thing that's always confused me about being a Christian is that often we pastors have a tendency to make Christianity sound really safe. Right? And so even if you are, if you're listening to Christian radio or a Christian movie or Christian books, often that's advertised as it's safe. You'll be safe. You can watch it. All right, and a part of that's okay. That My wife and I were watching TV the other day. Our, our young son, Isaiah, who's 20 months old, was there. And we had the TV on, and suddenly a commercial came on, and there were a bunch of zombies on the screen, right? And so my son is just looking at this, and we're trying to find the remote, turn it off, shield his eyes, you know, so he doesn't get terrified or doesn't call Child Protective Services on us. We're trying to, to shield his eye, and, and so we finally turn it off, and he saw the whole thing and was fine, which a part of that makes me feel good that in case there is a, a zombie apocalypse, my son is ready for it, right? And, and so a part of that I get, right? We live in a culture that, that has really terrible, damaging things that we want to, in some ways, protect our kids and, and protect ourselves from. But if you want to be safe, Christianity is really not a great religion. They even look at Acts 9, our two main characters, Saul and Ananias. The Ananias first, it's interesting because Jesus could have dealt with Saul on his own, but he doesn't. He says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. And I love Ananias' response. He's like, Lord, um, I don't know if you've heard, but I've heard um, that this guy has actually done a lot of evil things, especially to Christians. In fact, he seems to enjoy doing evil things to Christians. Um, just throwing that out there. Let's chat. And Jesus says, I want you to go. And Ananias does. And I, I know it would be easy to say, well, the Lord Jesus told him to go. He told it, Saul was converted, all that. But that's a risky move. It's a risky move. And I love what Ananias does. He goes, and he doesn't just stay back from a distance. He goes, and he, he first lays his hands on, 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 on Saul, and he prays for him. Lays his hands, embraces this man who had come to arrest Christians, Ananias lays his hands on him, and then he begins his prayer, Brother Saul. To me, that is just incredible. That a man who had come to wreak havoc and destroy lives in the church, Ananias goes, lays his hands on him, and calls him brother. But it's not just unsafe for Ananias to be a Christian. It's also unsafe for Saul to be a Christian. That Jesus tells Ananias what Saul's mission is going to be. It's first to preach the, the, to the Gentiles, like I mentioned. But it was then second. Jesus told Ananias um, that, that 
Saul is going to suffer for the name of Jesus. And I wonder why Jesus told Ananias that. That, that maybe it's because Saul caused suffering for Christians and, and Jesus is saying, listen, I saw that and Saul is going to pay back, be paid back for that in this life. Or maybe it's just to get Ananias to go. I don't know why he says that, but for Saul to become a Christian assumes he will begin suffering for Jesus' name. And I think if we are to be Christians, it will at times mean suffering. That, that when Jesus invited people to follow him, he said, okay, I want you to follow me, and, and here's a visual image for you. It's a cross. That's what it's like to follow me. Which, that would have been a, a brutal picture of death. An, an inherent idea of suffering. And that's what Jesus' invitation is to us to follow him, to take up our cross. And so I don't know why Jesus calls us to suffer as a church, but he will. And this is a hard thing for me to, to talk about. That earlier as we were praying for the persecuted church, I'll be honest, that's a hard thing for me to deal with because I just feel guilty when I hear of the persecuted church. That my tendency is to look at those who oppose me and not want to share the gospel with them, want to produce or, or proclaim condemnation on them, want to see them get theirs. And yet we have brothers and sisters all around the world ready to share and spread the gospel for the very people that want to arrest and persecute and kill them. And that's hard for me to look at. And, and the early church, I think, had an idea that suffering was a part of their faith. It, it's interesting because... In the Roman church, the, the very early Christians who were persecuted, they, they endured some incredible suffering. That Christians early on were burned al alive and, and the emperor Nero would actually use them as torches to light up parties. That they were fed to lions, tortured, murdered. It was so bad, in fact, that, that their death and their torture and their persecution actually became the sport of the Roman Empire. People would pay to go and watch them die. What a horrible, horrible thing. And yet, a few decades after the worst of the persecution, a plague hit the Roman Empire. Many people were sick, and there's an estimate that between a fourth and a third of the Roman population died as a result of this plague. And what happened was, as people began to get sick, the Roman citizens would abandon their sick because they didn't want to get sick. So many would flee to, their hill, to the hills, get out of Rome. Some, if they had a sick family member, they would literally throw them into the streets and abandon them so they would hopefully not spread the disease. And what Christians did was they set up hospitals. And they cared for the sick. If someone was thrown out into the street, they, they took them in to the point where many Christians died from that disease themselves because they cared for the sick. The very people who decades earlier cheered on torture and persecution of the Christians, these Christians loved their opponents so much some of them died for it. And, and the, the writer Rodney Stark says that's one reason why Rome started to love Christians and actually became Christians. Because they saw the church in this moment, in this plague, and they, they began to worship Jesus because of it. Because of the way the church loved their opponents. And this is still happening today in our culture, in the church. Or not so much in our culture, around the world for real suffering, real persecution. The one Christian our church has been praying for is an Iranian pastor named Farshid. And he pastors, he, he serves along with uh, one of our ministry partners, Elam Ministries. 
And Farshid is currently serving a, a six-year prison sentence in Iran for his work as a pastor. And he recently wrote a letter from prison, and I'm going to read it even though it makes me feel really small. Um, but they, they're powerful words, and they come from a brother of ours who is in prison now, and his picture is, is there, that's Farshid. Here's what he writes from prison. How can I complain about my suffering when my brothers and sisters are paying a high price for their faith all over the world? That I recently heard about many people killed in front of a church in Pakistan. I also heard a young sister in Christ sharing about how she lost her family for the sake of the gospel. And still she is willing to return and share the good news. How can I complain about my suffering when our dear brother Haik gave his life and was killed with more than 20 knife stabs to preach to sinners like me? And what about our dear brother Debosh, who spent nine years and 27 days in prison and was finally martyred after much suffering? How can I complain about my suffering when I think of our lovely brother Sudman, who had four precious children and was martyred? And finally, what about the Apostle Paul, who was many times in prison, suffered countless beatings, was stoned, and often near death, but served the Lord with all his heart? And after all this, Paul says, This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So when I look at these heroes of faith, how can I complain about my suffering? I read this and I feel really small. And I ask myself, am I willing to take risks to be a disciple of Jesus? Because that's why we as a church have no enemies. Because we are willing to risk all for everyone, everywhere. And again, I know, I know some of you in here don't see the church like that. You see guys like me, pastors, ready to get in fights with monks. You see a church adversarial and bickering and, and contributing to a fragmented culture. But don't give up on the church. Because the church is full of people like Farshid. And there's a reason for that. At the last few weeks, we've done a series on the church. Today, we sort of got a, a brief glimpse at Saul. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Peter. And both Saul and Peter had this complete change where what, they went from people willing to, to physically hurt those who opposed them to being people who called us to suffer for those who oppose us. And the reason for that, the reason, is not because they, they started trying harder, right? None of us are going to get anywhere trying harder. They did this because they encountered the real God. And Saul began on that road thinking he was serving the real God, but he was really serving a God of his own construction. For the God Saul had constructed and believed that all who opposed God should suffer for it, even if that means persecution or imprisonment. And while none of us probably construct a God just like that, where we might advocate for physical harm for others, we all human beings have this tendency to construct our own gods in our own minds. And all they do, or all those gods look like, is just bigger versions of ourselves. That those gods like the people we like and those gods really don't like the people we don't like. And those gods justify our sneers and our, our looking at those who we think are our enemies and opposing them in ways that, that aren't gracious or kind or loving. And so while all the gods that we invent, that, that we construct, like Saul, they're all individual. All the gods we have in our heads, they're all different, but they all have one thing in common. That they all look at those different from us and sneer. And condemn. They all tell ourselves that you're better than that person. You've got it together. They don't. And so we divide and we condemn. 
It doesn't matter if it's religion or politics or it could be anything. We look at others and we justify ourselves and look down on them. But do you know how you've encountered the real God, the true God? That you're willing to suffer for those who oppose you. Do you know who, why those who encounter are willing, or who really encounter God are willing to suffer for those who oppose them? Because the real God does not sneer at his opponents. He doesn't just simply condemn. He will at one point. He doesn't first condemn. First, he sends his son to give and to love and to, to offer himself as a sacrifice for those who oppose him. That only when you encounter that God can you truly have no enemies, truly love those who oppose you that Saul for the rest of his life will now suffer for the name of Jesus. He will not stone anyone else, but he will be stoned. He won't martyr anyone else, but one day, soon after this Acts 9 story, he'll be martyred. Or take Peter, whose life we looked at a couple weeks ago, that there's this moment at the end of, of the gospel, or, or one of the gospels, where Peter pulls out a sword and is ready to start the first Christian war. Remember Jesus is being arrested, he pulls out his sword, tries to kill a guy, misses, just gets his ear. And Jesus heals the guy's ear and says, Peter, I have all the army I need if I want to go to war. But that's not what we're doing. And Jesus then goes and dies on his cross. And then Peter, who is changed by that moment clearly, later in his life, when he writes his letter, his first letter in the New Testament, here's what he says. It was actually what we read earlier. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord always. As, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always prepare to make a defense for it, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And do you see what Peter's saying there? Peter, a man who once was willing to go to war, is now willing to suffer. And he says more than that, actually. He says, it may be God's will for you to suffer. But that's okay, because if he does, God is in control. Not the people who are, are causing that suffering or inflicting that suffering on you. God is the one over all that, sovereign over all that. Which is a question for, for all of us, or at least me. So why should we be willing to suffer for Jesus? It's because we have a hope that this world needs. We have a Savior this world needs. And when you've encountered that Savior, He is so good, so gracious, so kind, so loving to you, to me, that it's worth suffering at the hands of others, that they could just for a moment believe and receive. And what changed for Peter and Saul? They encountered the real God. They met the risen Jesus. The Jesus who died for those opposed to Him who forgave those opposed to him and to this day pursue all who oppose him. And when you encounter Jesus, his heart becomes your heart. His love becomes your love. And that alone, the encountering of the real God through the power of the Holy Spirit, through what Jesus Christ has done for us, will make the church into what we truly are. A place with no enemies. Let me pray for us. God, I know that that statement, as I even say it, just sounds ridiculous to me. That God, you have people who oppose you. God, as a church, as we go on mission, there will be moments when we feel weak, we feel 
we don't feel we have the, the strength to accomplish the mission. We have people who will oppose and, and even persecute your global church. But God, we come before you acknowledging that you have saved us through a cross where you suffered for us. Through a cross that though we oppose you in our sin, you come in grace and love and kindness. That you come to make our hearts new, to change our lives, to give us the hope that we live for, the hope that isn't just for today, but for eternity. A hope that can never be taken from us, no matter what people say, do to us. So God, instill that with us now. Encounter us. Meet with us. Change us. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. One way we as a church encounter Jesus is through communion. A communion is the place where we're reminded once for all we are not saved because we're better than other people. We're saved because it was Jesus' body that was broken for us and it was his blood that was shed for us. And so we can come and we can encounter Jesus for one reason. Because he encounters us on his cross and calls us near. So here at Christ Community, you don't have to be a member um, at, uh, of our church to serve communion. The, all followers of Jesus are invited um, to come and be welcome at his, ta- his, his table. This is an opportunity. It's not an obligation. Don't, don't feel forced. But if you want to encounter Jesus through this moment, um, we invite you. You can go um, through the front to the back um, to receive communion. And we'll take it in groups of, of four to six. Your servers will serve you. And then we'll dip and, and partake together. And so let's hear these words from Scripture that remind us of the importance of communion. For the Lord Jesus, on the the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So whenever you're ready, please come.